0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So there's a Japanese story of... um, There was a field of pumpkins, pumpkin field behind the temple, the Buddhist temple. And one day, um, the pumpkins got into a fight. <laughs> and uh, they were you know, ye- yelling and cursing and upset about something with each other. Pretty dramatic. Noisy. And so the teacher of the temple came out to see what was going on and had trouble getting the pumpkins' attention, but finally got them to quiet down enough so uh, the teacher could teach them to meditate. And uh, And then uh, got them all sitting cross-legged and upright and and, uh, to be with their breathing, and they all calmed down and quiet down and had a session of meditation. At the end of the meditation, the teacher said, okay, now um, all of you lift up your hand uh, and put it on top of your head. And when they did that, they discovered something on top of their head, which was the vine that they were all attached to. And they say, "What's this?" they said. And the uh, teachers ever look around, and then they discovered that they were all attached to the same vine. And then they stopped fighting. So part of the function of meditation is to calm ourselves down enough so that we can discover some kind of way in which we're connected to each other, and we're connected to each other in profound ways as human beings. And uh, when we start feeling the interconnectedness, the, the ways in which we uh, nourish each other, feed each other, support each other, connected to each other, then maybe there's much less reasons to fight and to argue with each other. So in, in uh, Buddhism, uh, community is a very important part of practice. And it's not always emphasized, if you read books, on Buddhism, or even listen to a lot of my talks, I don't think I emphasize community enough. And probably a lot of these books, you don't get a sense often how important community is. Uh, uh, you get a sense of how important it is, is to think that it's one considered to be one of the three jewels of Buddhism. The other three, uh, two jewels are the Buddha and the Dharma, and then the community, the Sangha is considered the third. And it's often emphasized that they're of equal value. And one way that one teacher who has really emphasized the importance of community uh, is Thich Nhat Hanh, who once said that the next Buddha will be the sangha, the next Buddha will be the community. And there's something very profound about this, I think. Uh, And perhaps it speaks something to do about our modern world. The world's gotten a lot smaller. And the need for us humans to get along with each other becomes more and more important. And that uh, we understand more and more the ways in which we're not so much individuals uh, as we are, you know, intimately part of a collective of other humans, of society, of the world, of the environment. And so it, it's perhaps time for us to wake up as a community, as a, as a, as a people, as much it is as individuals. So the next Buddha... Uh, coming along some point will be all of us together to wake up to ourselves as in community with each other. I think because meditation is somewhat individualistic, uh, in that it's easy to close your eyes and be internal. It's easy to meditate alone. There is a story uh, told at uh, England, uh, at Chithurst, when um, uh, they were first... Uh, Ajahn Sumedho and people were just beginning the Buddhist monastic communities in 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 England in in the nineteen seventies. I think they invited a very famous uh, Thai teacher monk, meditation master, to come and lead a retreat in England, and he happily came, I guess, or came and did it, and um, and uh, he would give teachings and instructions, and then he would leave and let everyone just meditate. And then he'd come back to the next teaching. At some point, someone raised their hand and said to him, uh, it would be nice if, uh, you know, if you could come and meditate with us sometime. And he looked completely surprised by this idea. And he said, well, I've never in my whole life meditated with other people. He was a forest, forest monk who spent much of his time in forest monasteries or in the forest meditating. Probably if he lived in a monastery, he probably receded to his own little cabin to meditate and uh, the idea that you would meditate with other people in community was a new idea for him and I could have gotten that idea easily when I was uh, practicing in Thailand and Burma in Thailand. I was given a um, i came to meditate I was new to this practice here and uh and I showed up at the monastery and uh, didn't you know i just was curious and i showed up and said to the abbot i'm here to meditate tell me what to do and so he said okay uh, you'll stay in that little hut you know i don't know eight by ten hut on the edge of the monastery over the swamps you, you stay over there and you meditate and here's your schedule of sitting and walking sitting walking meditation all day long and then come and see me once a day and so i had a, i had a nice time doing that but you know the instructions was to do it alone when I went to Burma. there was no instructions about whether to be sit with others or sit together and um, and so somehow I got there, and the other Westerners who were there they were all meditating in their rooms. There was a little western lodge for Westerners, so I meditated in my own room, and then at some point, um, I learned that they had opened up a little hall for the Westerners to meditate in, but uh, that seemed a little complicated to go to. Um, I did go once to sit. Uh, there was a little meditation hall for the Burmese men, so I went because the genders were segregated, so I went and sat there. And um, however, they had a fan on, and I caught a cold. So I never went back. So the idea I mean, there's plenty of places in, in Asia where you meditate together, so they, I'm not saying that's the common thing but it's easy to get the message that it's somehow individual. However, I was very fortunate to begin my Buddhist meditation practice uh, in the Japanese Zen tradition here in America where the emphasis really was to meditate together. Uh, and that uh, there the emphasis was more about the importance of doing it together than doing it individually. So much so that in some of these Japanese Zen traditions it was considered improper to go off and meditate by yourself, uh, off schedule. In fact, uh, there's a story of uh, one of the first students of Suzuki Roshi, early students of Suzuki Roshi, uh, who um, uh, decided to go practice in one of the premier Zen monasteries in Japan, Heiji. And uh, he felt that when he got there, living the life of a monastic, that they weren't meditating enough. So he decided he would meditate extra. So he'd go into the meditation hall and sit there and meditate, diligently. And so it's a little bit dramatic story, so you'll gasp maybe, he'll warn you. So at some point he noticed that um, the other monks were kind of descending on him, and the next thing he knew, he woke up on the train. And they had shot him with a hyperdermic needle needle, and sent him away. Because uh, he was being too individualistic, he was doing something that was not part of the group. And uh, she was, you know, you shouldn't meditate, you know, outside of schedule, outside of everybody when no one else is meditating. So there are these extreme ends <laughs> of these two examples. I, I met this man. Actually, I, I met him in Burma. And, um, and many years later, the, uh, Suzuki Roshi's wife, when I, t- I told her I was, so Suzuki Roshi was a founder of San Francisco Zen Center and he died in 1971. But his wife stayed living at Zen Center for many years, so I met her some 10 years later. And um, I told her I was going to Burma, and she said, oh, Suzuki Roshi always wanted to go to Burma. So she gave me a photograph of him, a color photograph of Suzuki Roshi to take with me. So I took it with me, and I came to this monastery to meditate in Burma, where I was meditating in my room all the time, and uh, there was a Western monk there. Turned out that Western monk was the monk who in the 1960s had been put on the train. <laughs> and uh, so I was kind of delighted to meet him. And, you know, I, I'd heard this legendary story. And then I found out it was true. He said, oh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then I gave him my, the photograph. The, because it had been his teacher in the 1960s. So anyway, this is extreme, but the balance uh, of finding a practice for oneself and finding it in community, getting community support, is a very important part of the recipe of finding our way in Buddhist practice. And different people will find a different balance of those two. But what I'd like to emphasize today is the value of practicing in community. Uh, One uh, analogy that's sometimes used is that if you want to make a fire, it's hard to have a fire with just one log. But if you have lots of logs piled up together, then uh, you can have a great fire. So in some ways it's hard to practice alone completely. You need to have people, most people need a fair amount of support from others so they can really, you know, the practice can get going. And that's certainly my case. And so I was very fortunate to start my practice in uh, the Zen tradition, where the emphasis was to be in community. Uh, and, you know, for me, I was young and I went to live in the in the Zen center. So I was really kind of in the community all the time. And one of the first reasons I had for going there to be in the Zen community was uh, I felt a need to be mirrored. I felt a need to get feedback. Uh, I could see that I had some personal foibles, uh, say it, you know, kindly. And... Um, and that, that I was kind of blind to or, I could, or or I couldn't quite get my handle on. And I noticed that when I was in the community there that they stood out in highlight. I saw them more clearly. And rather than going to community to hide from what I didn't want to look at myself, I went to community to have it stand out so I can look at what was uncomfortable. And so I could work with it and practice with it and find my way through. And so that was one of my, the first motivations I had for being in the community at Zen Center. As I was there, one of the things that became very clear, and it became super clear in that first retreat in Thailand when I was put in a little hut in by myself, because I'd spent my years of meditation at the Zen Center in community, and the bell rings in the morning, everyone wakes up, and everyone goes and meditates. And uh, there was no question about it. The, you know, the bell rings, you meditate, then you go as a group. And everyone's sitting there meditating together. And so there wasn't like, you know, well, do I feel like getting up now? You know, maybe I've meditated enough now. This has been successful. And, uh, <laughs> you know, five minutes in. <laughs> and so I'll go, you know, and I have other things to do. No, you, you, you meditate with the group, and when the group stops, then you go. And so I was carried by the discipline of the group. <clears throat> and a lot of my ability to practice uh, in an ongoing way, in a disciplined way, in an inspired way, uh, was because I was practicing within the group. And then when I went to Thailand, my first retreat there, and I was put to, by myself in a little hut, I thought, wow, I, really reali- I didn't realize how much I relied on the community and the group for the discipline. And then I thought, now that my task is to find the discipline in myself. And so for 10, for ten weeks, I, was medita- I meditated alone. And so that was kind of took a lot of, you know, pull something inside of me to be able to keep doing it without the support of others around me. And, um, and uh, part of the value for me of being in community was uh, to have, not only was I mirrored f- to them, but I saw in other people qualities that I really admired. I saw people who who demonstrated qualities of freedom, of being really at ease and at peace with themselves and the world around them. I saw people who lived lives of integrity. I saw people who lived lives of generosity in a way that I'd never seen before, that inspired me what's possible. I saw people who uh, were kind. Um, uh, Still to this day, I have a visceral memory of uh, talking about a personal tragedy I was going through with one of the teachers at Zen Center, and the compassion that he had for me, uh, you know, changed my life in some way. So this idea of being around people who have qualities that inspired me, that fed me, that showed me what was possible, was a very important part of being in the community. Um, the, um, and then there were times <clears throat> when uh, being in community, <clears throat> I got feedback. Uh, people, you know, Gil, <laughs> you know, there's something I want to tell you. <clears throat> and I said, oh. <laughs> and, uh, and people would actually tell me about uh, things they noticed about me because they got to know me over time that, you know, if you're always living alone individually, there's no one who's going to, you know, give you feedback of what's important. The Buddha said that if someone gives you feedback that is useful, you should treat them as a treasure. They're, they're so valuable for you. Uh, more, much more valuable perhaps than someone just makes you comfortable. Um, but you know, so there's a certain kind of discomfort that's very helpful that helps you to grow and develop. And I got a lot of feedback from others. And um, the, um, there, was one, there was a period of time where I was a uh, uh, little bit over enthusiastic about the value of meditation. And um, I'd come back from Asia, practicing in Asia, practicing these long retreats I did there, and I went back to Zen Center, one of my teach- talking to one of my teachers there, and I was talking with my enthusiasm about meditation, and, um, and probably enthusiasm to say it nicely. And he stopped me, and he looked at me and said, Gil, talking to you is like talking with someone who's an addict. <laughs> so that was a, you know, Interesting thing to be told by one of your teachers, one of my teachers. So, you know, then I got to look at this, you know, it wasn't just a kind of enthusiasm, but perhaps, you know, it's easy enough to understand that when someone does something intensely for a while, they may be overly enthused. But, so hopefully that doesn't come across anymore now, even though most of you come here and hear me talk about meditation with enthusiasm. The um <clears throat> and then the other thing that's uh, very helpful about being in community is uh, to be in conflict with others, and you don't go into community to be in conflict. But one of the definitions of, I li- one of the definitions I like to have for a Buddhist community, like IMC or some community, is that um, it's not the community that. It could be the community you like to meditate with, it could be a community that has teachings that are meaningful for you, all kinds of things, community of nice people that you feel some, some, some connection to or something. But I think a more profound uh, meaning for a Buddhist community is uh, the community that you're willing to be in conflict with, the community that you would like to be in conflict with, or that you know, because conflict is part of our human life. We're gonna find out ways in which we rub rub against each other the wrong way and we're gonna make mistakes and we're gonna say the wrong things and we're going to, um, you know, offend each other or, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, as we go through our life, especially if we try to live a life of honesty and a life of connection to other people. We start trying to do things together and, and um, like in a place like IMC, if you are gonna volunteer here at IMC, you're doing things, incorporating, trying to get things done. And that's a recipe for conflict a little bit. And, uh, but conflict shouldn't be avoided. It shouldn't be sur- uh, sought out either. Here was one of the, the little aside um, that uh, points in this direction to this idea. So when I was in, in the usefulness of it, someone give you feedback, in this case a teacher, um, actually, it was the same teacher who told me I was an addict. And some years earlier, I went to him and said, "I notice that when I'm meditating in uh, Zen, you're not supposed to move and you're sitting cross-legged, all you know." And um, I said, "If I meditate, and when I start uh, having knee pain, when there's pain, I get more concentrated. And and if I uh, sit in full lotus." then there's, pain comes a lot faster. Should I, you know, sit in full lotus so I can get, have pain so I get concentrated? <laughs> and, um, and he probably, you know, I don't know what he thought inside, but what he very, very kindly said to me, uh, no, uh, don't go looking for pain, but when the pain comes, then practice with it. So, with conflict, you know, don't go looking for conflict, don't make up conflict, just have conflict. But, um, but uh, it's normal, I think, for communities, societies to have some degree of conflict. And the health of a Buddhist community is not that they don't have conflict, the absence of conflict. Uh, the health of a Buddhist community is that their willingness to work with the challenges, that they're willing to, uh, try, to f- try to deal with it in a reasonable, open, honest, caring way. And one of the ways that I like to think of this is that a Buddhist community, ideally, is a community that never turns their back on anyone. It might be very hard and difficult, but not turning our back means that we're there to stay present and try to find our way through however long it takes. And I learned the value of this not in a Buddhist community initially, but I learned it from living at a a place called The Farm in Tennessee. And it was, uh, The Farm was a, probably the biggest hippie commune in its time in, 60s and the 70s and I think still there to some degree in Tennessee it was started by uh, a man named Stephen Gassner, uh, Gaskin and Stephen Gaskin, Gaskin um, said he had three teachers spiritual teachers uh, it was uh, Suzuki Roshi this teacher at Zen Center it was his uh, uh, Marine Corps drill sergeant and it was LSD <laughs> And uh, at some point, he was a became a, kind of a hippie spiritual teacher in San Francisco in the '60s, and hundreds and hundreds thousands of hippies gathered to hear his talks. And at some point, he was invited to go around campuses around the country to give talks, and all these hippies decided to go with him. It was so they called the it was called the caravan. All these school buses, you know, with a few hundred, you know, people. They used to get stopped at the border, state borders because the police were like aghast, you know, all these Haight-Ashbury showing up. And, um, and, but they went around the country, and they, came to, they, went, they drove through Tennessee, and they found a farm, a very large farm and over 1,000 acres or something, and uh, somehow they bought it. And, you know, it's kind of an unusual to have Haight-Ashbury move to rural Tennessee. And, um, and when they got there... At some point, they realized that uh, their sacrament that they had, which was LSD, didn't quite work legally to use in Tennessee. So they had to come up with a different sacrament. They had to find, come up with something that was as powerful as LSD. And what they found that was as powerful as LSD was honesty, or is honesty. And so when I got there, uh, they had stopped using LSD, and they were using honesty. And I was planning to stay for three, three days, and I ended up staying for four months because I had never come across people who knew how to be in conflict. Um, if there was a, uh, any kind of conflict, even the slightest ripple between people in the community, they would stop and talk about it. And the people who'd been there for a while got really good at talking about it. It got so good that they stopped being defensive uh, and they would, uh, you, know, uh, you know, and they'd hang out. The, the language was to ha- keep the conversation going until uh, it be- uh, someone copped. And I guess I mean someone kind of, you know, said, like, okay, now I understand what's going on. And, and, they got, and people were there for a long time got really good at it. And literally sometimes uh, all someone would have to do uh, was to look at someone and smile. And there's, oh, there it is. Okay, I agree. I cop. You know, I'm, I'm a little off because they did so much time talking about it. So this idea of, that you would walk towards conflict and difficulty and bring it up and talk about it, and that there is, in fact, a way through it, was very inspiring for me. You don't have to be quiet, you don't have to pretend it's not there. It is possible, it was the lesson I got. And over the years, I have been um, on the uh, ethics, uh, involved with the ethics issues at, at different Buddhist communities. And um, at Spirit Rock, for 15 years, I was a chair of the ethics uh, committee there. And there were all kinds of conflicts that arose in the community and transgressions and things that would come up. And, um, and I just saw again, over and over again, how useful it is to step towards conflict and that there's, a, there's an art, a way of going through that and working through it where uh, it has everyone's uh, welfare in mind. How do we find the greater good for everyone that's involved? But it takes a lot of time. And uh, there are t- ways of dealing with conflict that can be done much faster uh, than honesty and working it out and talking about it. But I think that the other ways, like punishment and judgment and ruling and ex- you know, um, kicking people out or... Um, is um, is not very effective in the long term. The inefficiency of standing and talking about things and working through conflict, um, uh, it's inefficient in the short term, but in the long term it has long-term benefits. The short-term solutions create continued long-term problems. And um, so I've heard that Jack Cornfield talks about this, that uh, he's been part of the American... Insight Vipassana movement for since the beginning. It started here in the 1970s. And he said that the movement went through uh, three different phases of how to deal with real conflict and maybe ethical transgressions that came up. And the first uh, was denial. The second was um, um, excommunication. And the third was to talk about it. To really kind of go and talk and figure out and find out what's going on. So this is a long-winded way of saying that one of the values of a Buddhist community is it's a community that becomes wiser over time about how to be in conflict and how to work with things. And I think it's one of the great gifts to all of us that uh, you know that that we find our way and able to, to, to do this, and that it's a value that we hold. So a Buddhist, com- one of the things that makes a Buddhist community a community, I think, is uh, this, is the, this, is, this is the community or a community that uh, you're willing to be in conflict with. And uh, one reason why this is important is that there's a lot of idealization that goes on f- about spiritual communities. And I've, you know, I've been mostly involved in Buddhist communities over these decades and living in some of them. And from the outside, they look pretty, pretty ideal. You know, and I can't tell you how many times I've known people who just, you know, over idolize these people who are walking on clouds and are beatific, and certainly everyone's enlightened. and And uh, from the outside, they think everyone, you know, they hold they hold everyone in the community up at a high standard, and and then they go live in the community or get into it, and they find out that it's not that way. In fact, in some ways, um, there might be more. Uh, I don't know how to word this properly, a higher percentage of people for you to be in conflict with in a Buddhist community maybe than in ordinary life. I don't know if that's fair, but uh, I don't know how to say it. But, you know, the people who come to Buddhism tend to be the people who are suffering. And the people who are suffering have challenges that are, you know, that and so... So, you know, rather than being the people who are the most enlightened and happy, it tends to be a higher percentage of people who are tr- troubled and challenged in some ways. And so it's a place to come and work through that and work on it and find a way through. But in doing that, sometimes we bump up against each other. And as we bump up, that bumping up against each other is part of the practice, it's part of where our own practice resides, our own self understanding, our own. Uh, self-exploration, our own movement towards freedom. I have seen, um, you know, over these 40 years, known a lot of Buddhist practitioners who've been very, very serious practitioners, who've been engaged in practice, you know, for decades, really, some of them. And there have been, there are some people who clearly have done most of their practice alone. That's been their specialty. And they've matured in many ways, in inspiring ways. And there are people who have done primarily their practice in community, with a lot of community, working together, volunteering together, everything. And they also mature, but they mature in different ways. And what I've found is that people who do it uh, almost completely as individuals tend to have rough edges, tend to not be able to kind of really, really kind of get along so well with other people. they don't really know themselves in a certain kind of social way. And so they tend to then feel uncomfortable with their social life and then recede more back into their individual practice. It, uh, so much so that I actually uh, have more confidence in Buddhist practice when it's done in community, when it's done in relationship to other people. And I don't know how much uh, people, in, any individual should have in community but, um, uh, you know, each person has to choose for themselves. But uh, here at IMC, um, we have these open doors and we try to be somewhat relaxed about how people come and go and how people are here. And so for some people who, uh, for their phase of their life, or their personality, it re- works actually better to kind of be more anonymous. Uh, some people sit, you know, in the back row or sit in the way that... Uh, they don 't talk to anyone for years, and i 've had people come here and tell me i 've been coming for five years and I look at the really <laughs> 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 you know somehow you know they sit in the back and i haven 't noticed <clears throat> and, uh, and, and they tell me how meaningful that 's been. People have told me this is the only place in public, kind of a public place, where nothing 's asked of me. Did I just come here and And other people feel that uh, you know they come and they feel it's kind of unfriendly here, because people are quiet and meditating, and and uh, or maybe there's not you don't see a lot of people like you. They seem like very different than them, and so it feels uncomfortable to be here, to be stand out or be different, or so whatever reason. And um, and uh, and there are people who come here and really want strong community. And uh, sometimes the first time, the first day they're here, we know that. Yeah, they have to make themselves known in a very clear way. It's kind of inspiring to see sometimes. And uh, and people who are early on will jump in and find ways to become a volunteer and to help out and to um, get, partly to get connected to the community. And so the idea at IMC, given an urban setting, uh, and people have busy lives and work lives and family lives and all kinds of lives, is to have a center that uh is available in for people to join participate in in many different ways for the people who find it just a helpful supportive place to come and have to just sit and have teachings and go home we're very happy to have that place for people who want to delve into deeper community life um uh, by going to potlucks by Coming to the you know some of the some of the events and the activities we do where we get to meet each other and talk to linger here, linger here and days after the teachings and just to get to meet people and talk, uh, it can be very helpful to do that. We have these neighborhood groups that people have signed up. Some people have signed up for, where uh, once a month people join the neighborhood neighborhood groups and uh, to talk about the Dharma together. Some people find that very helpful to get to know each other and get you know find out what's going on. And then the volunteering. Uh, Some people find that volunteering is one of the really dynamic ways of getting involved in the community and to get some of the benefits of being in a Buddhist community life itself. Um, So, community. Spiritual friendships in the community. The value of it is is kind of summarized in one little teaching the Buddha gave. And he said that the, the forerunner, the precursor for the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path is the primary kind of set of practices that represents the Buddhist path, teachings, practices that exist. So this path of the Eightfold Practices, the precursor for it, the, forerunner for it, is uh, good spiritual friendships. So that's kind of how we emphasize the importance of it. So um, those are my thoughts this morning about the role and value of community. And um, I certainly am phenomenally grateful for uh, all the communities that I've been part of, uh, Buddhist communities. and I would not have gone so far as I did in my practice. I wouldn't be here sitting, teaching, without the tremendous support I received from many, many people, many, many communities. Intentionally or not intentionally, I was supported by many. And to this day, I feel very supported by the people who come here, all of you. Thank you very much. It's very meaningful to be able to be together with people who are also practicing and, um, and to learn from you and to be inspired by you and, and to find our way together. So it's really a wonderful thing. Thank you.